Church, the Bible reading tonight is from Acts chapter 19. Uh, But first, just to give us some context, uh, I want to read out a pre-prepared statement. Um, Tonight we are going to read uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41. However, this is right in the middle of a story, so it would be helpful to know some context. Paul is on his third missionary journey around the Mediterranean. Previously in chapter 19, Paul has arrived in Ephesus and has been preaching about the kingdom of God. Thousands of people hear the gospel, and it is shown to have incredible power. As a result of the preaching and signs, huge amounts of people are turning away from idols, some at significant financial sacrifice to to themselves, in order to follow Jesus, the living and true God. So I will start the reading at um, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Uh, And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people, But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thank you, Billy and Austin. Thanks, Loz. <clears throat> it's wonderful to see you all here. There's, um, there's more of you here today than last week. It's wonderful to see you all. To those on live stream as well, it's uh, good that you can gather with us in that capacity. We are starting a new series tonight as we enter into May Mission. Uh, we're starting a series called To the Ends of the Earth. Uh, so that's what this banner is all about. That's what we're doing. In the morning service, uh, we're doing a series called Following Jesus. So together we are a church that is following Jesus to the ends of the earth. We're partnering with all sorts of missionaries overseas and with us uh, here locally. And so hopefully you're inspired by the word of God 
and us together as we explore what it means to be people who are following Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to explore Acts. Uh, We're going to jump back into it again. And we're going from Acts chapter 19, which we had read, and we're going to go through uh, to the end. But before we do that, let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he showed us the way, uh, that he died on that cross, he rose again in victory, and that we're invited to follow him. Thank you that he sends us to the ends of the earth. I thank you that your gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray that as we open your word now, uh, that you will speak to me by your Holy Spirit. You'll speak to us, sorry, through me by your Holy Spirit. And that we're inspired to live for you and what it means to be followers of Jesus in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know, does anyone remember when we last did Acts? Anyone remember? I couldn't believe it. We did it just October last year. Like, when I think about that, like, wow, it seemed like forever ago. Um, 2020 was a bit of a blur. And so I thought, you know, when you watch, a, like, a Netflix series or something like that, Married at First Sight, they give you a previously in Married at First Sight, that kind of thing. Um, we'll do that. We'll do that in Acts. And we'll do a bit of a, a whirlwind tour uh, of Acts so far and what we've looked at so that when we jump into it, because we're jumping into the, the, kind of the middle slash towards the, the back end, uh, we've got some idea what's going on. Now, back in 2019, we had this series, that series, we'll point up there. No, the one back. That one, yes, Unleashed, uh, where we looked at Acts 1 to 9. And the key part about this, or that series and that part of the Bible, is that Jesus has ascended, he's gone into heaven in glory, and the Holy Spirit has come. The person of God himself, and he's inhabited the believers, and they are then unleashed, they're inspired, empowered by him, directed by the Holy Spirit, to take this gospel, the message of Jesus, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And that's what Acts is about. And we see this new community be formed. We see them then like be shaped by the heart of God to live out the ethics of the kingdom of God here on earth. Then we had the next series, which was this one. Acts um, advancing against the odds. This is the one we did last year. And in this series where we went from Acts chapter 10 uh, through to 10 to 18, uh, we see the mission of God go from the Jews into the Gentile territory. And we see Gentiles coming to faith all across the Mediterranean. So the gospel moves geographically. It also also moves uh, ethnically. It covers all stratas of society. But as we mapped that journey, we saw there was obstacle and barrier after barrier. Things were always preventing the gospel. But what did it do? It kept advancing. It kept advancing against the odds. And we were in the era of COVID at that time, kind of still are. And we were reminding ourselves from the Word of God that the kingdom of God will go on against the odds. No matter what, if we can't see it, the sovereignty of God will always prevail. His kingdom will always grow. And I hope we're still living in that purpose and uh, the context changes, but the message and the mandate, uh, it doesn't. And then that brings us to this series where we are jumping into Acts chapter 19 where we're going to see it continue to go to the ends of the earth. The barriers and the obstacles, they're still going to keep coming. And kind of image that's been really helpful for me as I've been preparing this series is like water that's on the top of a mountain and then flowing down. When you imagine a water and a river and it's flowing down from a mountain, 
it, it gets hit by obstacles, it gets hit by barriers, but it keeps flowing. It might have to go left, it might have to go right, it might have to dam up for a little bit, but it always prevails. The purpose and the, and the mission of that water to get to the sea, it always gets there. And that's what we're going to see as we uh, explore this series. As we particularly see the Holy Spirit empowering Paul and the disciples as they continue to share the hope of the Lord Jesus. And as Luke's purpose tells us in the book of Acts, I hope that inspires us as we know the confidence to which the things we've been taught and we see what it means to emulate these faithful disciples that have gone before us. So that's the big overview. That's, that's, that's what's what happened. That's where we're landing. So we've done the big plane trip over. Jumping out now in a parachute, we're in chapter 19. Now this is quite an incredible passage. Uh, it goes on like what well, happens a bit before what Loz read. And we're going to explore a bit of that from verse uh, 8. There's lots of themes that we could draw out from here. There's heaps of stuff going on here. Spiritual warfare and uh, the sovereignty of God and what it means to be sharing the gospel. But we want to look through it through the lens of what it means when the gospel is preached to idols. I think that's a recurring theme throughout this passage. Uh, to see what it means when the gospel is preached, when the idols of our heart are exposed. What is the effects on the individual? And what are the effects on the culture at large? And that's where we're going today. We're going to pick up the journey from verse 8. Hopefully you've got your Bibles with you. Have a look uh, with me, verse 8. So Paul's in Ephesus, and he enters the synagogue. So he's speaking to the Jews. And he spoke to them boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them were obstinate, and they refused to believe, and they public maligned the way. That's just talking about the Christian gospel, the people as well. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. Now, when reading this, this is a pretty good summary of what Paul does. He goes to the Jews, he talks to them, he, he shares the gospel. When they've had enough of him, he's like, that's all right, I'll go somewhere else. I'll go to the Gentiles, and I'll tell them. That's what this lecture, of, the lecture of Tyrannus is about. That's a Gentile lecture theater. He's going in there preaching the gospel. Now, what's particularly interesting about this part in Acts is that Paul, it, Luke tells us, sorry, when I keep referring to Luke, he's the author of Acts. Probably should that before. Um, Paul here, he preaches boldly and persuasively. Now, the issue of being bold, it probably can get lost on us as we, we read it just out of the blue. Every time so far, or pretty much every time, Paul has gone and preached the gospel, it's gone bad for him in some physical way. People are trying to kill him, they're stoning him, they're whipping him. Like, when he preaches to the Jews, people come to faith and people try to kill him. So when he's saying, when Luke says he's preaching boldly, this guy's being bold. He knows that persecution is going to come to him. But he also knows that Jesus is the only hope for this world and for the individual. And so he preaches boldly. He keeps going. And the other element is he's persuasive. Like Paul, he knows his stuff. He's reading the Bible. He's in prayer. He's considering what's going on in the culture. And he's adapting. He's not changing the gospel but he's preaching that gospel to the culture and engaging with their thoughts and ideas. So in both these ways of being bold and being persuasive, Luke is saying this is a person to emulate. Not you playing copy him, but like repeating stories like this, Paul is make, Luke's making the point 
that we emulate his behavior in our own context. And then we see the effect that it happens then. That bold proclamation, see what it says, verse 10. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. Now, all, that's a pretty strong statement. All of them here. It's not like Paul is physically actually talking to every single person, but he talks to a bunch of people, and then they talk to a bunch of people, and they talk to someone, and they talk to someone, and they talk to someone. The gospel is going out making disciples of disciples, and even the people that are rejecting it, they're telling their friends about this gospel that's going on. Like, this gospel is so powerful. It's changing the culture. It's influencing it so much that the word is going out. All of Asia is hearing And I think for us, the encouragement is to just keep sharing the gospel. When one group decides that it's not worth listening to anymore, that's okay, we love them, but we turn the other cheek and we share it with someone else. We continue to love them, we continue to share the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. And I know when when you invest in someone and you're sharing faith with them and and they, they decide to reject, it can be hard. It's sad and it should be sad. But don't let it stop you. Keep seeking which individuals and which groups we can share the gospel with. The effect in Ephesus was that practically everybody knew. Now that is pretty incredible. But the message, um, it is so powerful that it causes amazing things to happen. And we see one of these amazing stories in, in in the next section down in verse 17. Because what happens is the gospel can cause repentance. Repentance from idols. Have a look, verse 18. So skip down a little bit. Basically, the little bit that we're skipping is about this magic and crazy power of God amongst people. It says this, verse 18. Many of those who believed came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery, they brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Like that is crazy repentance from idols, right? That is, that is a crazy repentance on a grand scale, like a huge bonfire. You could see this thing, I imagine, from a mile away. Now, it says 50,000 drachmas, and that's a weird kind of currency, but you look in your footnote if you've got one, and it will say it's a day's wage. 50,000 days wages. That's a lot. That's more than any of us are going to earn in one lifetime. If you just take the minimum wage that we have in Australia, just the minimum, you would get in today's dollars $7.5 million. $7.5 million. That is a crazy amount uh, to give away, to, to burn up, sorry. Like, most of us are not going to even earn that in our entire life. And why? Why would they just go and burn it? Because when the gospel is preached, and when the gospel is understood, it's revealing. It's confronting, and it's convicting. And those sorcerers were so convinced of the gospel and convicted in their hearts that these scrolls were against the values of the kingdom of God, they, they decided to burn them. They decided no matter how much financial value they had, no matter how much social value they had in the world, it was not comparable to knowing Christ. In the economy of the kingdom of God, and which is now and into eternity, they are worthless. 
and the people repented from their use. Because friends, when, when we truly get the gospel, when we see the gospel and understand it, we know it's not just simply a set of beliefs that just stays in our head. It calls us to this whole new way of life. It completely changes our lifestyle. Like burning those scrolls, it's a super vivid image. All that value, perceived value as such, just going up in smoke. But it's a wonderful image of picking up your cross and following Jesus. Not bowing to the idols of magic, but bowing to the true king, Jesus. And that repentance and that sacrifice has an incredible effect on people that see it. When people see our repentance and our sacrifice and the things that we've, we do for, for the sake of God and we repent of things and whatever it is that we've sacrificed from, people think it's strange. They notice. And that's what happened here. They notice the change and they consider God as a result. But also when the gospel is preached, it's not always repentance that happens. Sometimes, and what we see here when the gospel is preached, is that there is a clash of cultures. And as we had read for us before, there's a great disturbance. It's a pretty great disturbance. And this is where we get our next scene. Now, it's important to remember up until this point, right, the, belief, like the people who have believed in the gospel, um, it's gone out, it's, it's gone everywhere, and they're changing their life. They're changing their life so much so that the culture is feeling it. The society is like, wow, this is an incredible movement. The economy is feeling it. There's a genuine effect on the society. And it's so much so, right, that this Demetrius guy, he is fed up. He's had enough. He obviously doesn't like the gospel. He doesn't care for Jesus very much at all. He rejects it. He wants to hold on to his own idols. And so if you glaze over this passage, you see him like he's someone who makes little shrines uh, for the temple of Artemis. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, And he gets extremely upset in his trade, uh, extremely upset because his trade and therefore his income and therefore his riches are getting flushed down the toilet. And he rallies up the other workers. You get this, verse 25. Uh, He says, He called them all together, so that's his workers, and then the workers of the other trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income. We receive a good income from this business. The greed. We can see the greed come up in Demetrius. That's what's being attacked to him. Now, this Temple of Artemis is a pretty big deal. That's it on the screen there. The Ephesians had enormous pride uh, in this temple and the goddess Artemis. Now, in our day, we call, it's not around anymore, but we call this one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is an impressive, it's enormous uh, building. Now, the goddess of Artemis, we probably would more likely think of it as, as she being the god of business because Artemis is the goddess of the moon, of the hunt, of fertility, And because she's the goddess of fertility, she's associated with fertility of the harvest, growth, money, financial prosperity. Because this temple is so magnificent and the promise of prosperity, this made Artemis and her temple like a bit of a tourist hotspot. People wanted to go there. And what happens when they go there? Demetrius and his mates are making stuff. They're making little souvenirs. And what happens when you go to a tourist hotspot with souvenirs? 
The prices are through the roof, right? So Artemis and his mates are making a good deal of money here. They're making the coin. And they see these Christians and they're like, they're not buying our stuff anymore. We've got to stop this movement. We can't have our money go down the drain. They are fueled by greed. And they're also fueled by pride. Pride in the name of their businesses and pride in this god, goddess Artemis uh, who's bringing them uh, success and bringing them fame in their region. And their desire uh, is to keep uh, their desire is, is to keep her around and uh, keep her, her fame great. Have a look, verse 26. You hear this fellow Paul, he's convincing everybody to go astray in Ephesus uh, and across this province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its great name, but also the temple of the great Artemis will be discredited. The goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. What do they do when they hear this? They're furious and they begin chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're going on. They're rioting. You see, if you just flick the rest of it, right? They're going in the amphitheater. This amphitheater is enormous. It can house up to 25,000 people. You imagine 25,000 people screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Like football fans going crazy. It's an it's a intense kind of sight. Now, it kind of sounds like these people are really, really zealous for Artemis of the Ephesians. And they, they kind of are. We can kind of easily dismiss... Uh, idol worship, because it seems a bit naive. You know, ancient people are probably a bit naive. They're always bowing down to idols uh, as if it's going to bring them salvation or success. But the Ephesians are not primarily caring about Artemis, I don't think. They care about what Artemis represents. A quest for more. A quest for financial gain. A quest for more social honor at all costs. Artemis and her little idols are just physical representations of what is the deep idols in their heart. Demetrius and the crowd, they reject the gospel for the idols of pride and greed. Because when the gospel is preached, the idols of the heart, they are exposed and they are pressed against. And you get those two responses. Uh, repentance or riot. Now, when the gospel meets our idols today, we're probably not seeing riots on the streets, but there certainly can be riots in our hearts. We're not so different today in Western culture. We might not make little idols out of figurines, but we just as easily construct them and we hide them in our heart. The motives of the human heart very much the same then as they are now. We are still in a culture that is glorifying and constantly displaying uh, greed and pride and a whole manner of idols. Because what is an idol? An idol is anything in your life that is so central that if you didn't have it, you didn't have meaning. Like you chase after it as like the meaning of your life. If you don't have it, it's as though you didn't have that meaning. For these writing Ephesians, 
It's not like they, they want to keep their income. They want to keep their social status in the region. If they don't have that, it's as though they don't have meaning anymore. Those are the things that they're finding their delight, finding their pleasure in. Idolatry is when we make any good thing and we make it ultimate. We can do that with all sorts of good things. Quest for a partner, success, career, really anything. In wrestling with this passage, I think the idol that stands out to the Ephesians, the thing that stood out to me, I think that stands out for us, is greed. Now, greed is a funny thing because it is so hard to see. So hard to see. Rarely, rarely will someone confess or admit, whatever, that they're greedy. We're very easy to identify at least lust or pride or jealousy or envy. But greed, that's harder. And especially the greed of money, it it just hides itself. Because our culture, it it celebrates and, and calls us to desire experiences and desire possessions. And how do we mostly get those things? Through money. And we need money to live. Money's not inherently a bad thing at all, but we need it to live. We go to work so we can earn money. When you get promoted or you go to a new job, what do you get? You get more money. And that's not a bad thing. That's one of the great blessings that, that God has given us. Money is not a bad thing. But the seductiveness of money rises. Greed then rises with it. You know what Jesus, when he was preaching, uh, when he was on earth, he spoke way more about greed than he did about sex and all the other things. Yet we don't really feel like we're guilty of it. When I was preparing this sermon, I wrestled with it myself and I'm like, eh, I'm probably not that guilty of it either. I quit my job to come here. And God just hit me straight in the heart. Matt, you spend your money in the bank. And that just simply revealed to me, I still have an an idol of greed in my heart. I might not be seeking it or, or spending it extravagantly, but I try to save it. Because I know that when I have money in the bank, that's security for me. That's, if I can track my finances, yeah, I'm in control. It reveals my fear that if I don't have it, I can't provide for my family. Where's the abundance of generosity there? And in extreme, it's certainly no dependence on God. Now, of course, being financially prudent is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing to be financially prudent. It's wise. It's a healthy practice. But my heart needs no encouragement to have a healthy practice there. It just feeds my my idol of greed. What my heart does need help in is for the Holy Spirit to transform it more into the likeness of Jesus, to be more generous, to give where I can, to give sacrificially, to use the financial blessings that God has blessed me with for His glory and not primarily my own financial well-being. But you know what happens when our hearts confronted with an idol and my heart was confronted with that one what do we do we can riot we riot in our hearts 
Now, we're not screaming, maybe, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But we might be screaming, great is the suburban life. Great it is to travel the world. Great is success. Great is my family. Whatever it may be to you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, like the gospel calls us to ask the questions, what are the idols in our life? What are the things that get between us and God? Now, I'm not trying to preach that money is a bad thing or our home is a bad thing or experiencing the beauty of this world is a bad thing. In no way at all. But they can so easily, easily become our idols. They can easily consume our lifestyles, our desires, our decisions. And we need to continually to ask God to reveal them to us. Like, what are the good things that have become ultimate? And will we repent or will we riot? Now, but there's something in this passage, uh, rather than being confronting, I think is actually quite inspiring. To quickly touch on the remainder of this section, we get an address from this city official. The riot is going on, and this guy gets up. And what he goes on to say is basically, sure, this gospel message, it's subvertive, but it's not criminal. Even though the Christians, yeah, they're living for another king. They're living this countercultural lifestyle. As Christians, we are not against society. We are not being criminal. Now, the witness to Jesus, it will naturally be subversive to our world. It's countercultural in its lifestyle. But to steal Tim Mack's quote, our lives are to be attractively different. It is to be different because... <laughs> And sometimes it won't be pleasing to others. And we shouldn't expect it to be. But our collective witness will be attractive to others and it will have a difference in our culture. And what is incredibly inspiring about these early apostles and, and disciples and as we see, keep displaying, keeping to be displayed around the world, is that when the collective witness of the church is idleless, there is a profound effect. When the believers in Ephesus turn from their idols and they live for Jesus, the economy and the society saw it. They felt it. You and I, we're not just living like separate lives throughout the week, scattered everywhere. Sure, we're scattered. We go to our homes and our jobs. But we are always a collective community that witnessing together to Christ. Always. And our collective witness, wherever we find ourselves, the more and more we do it is attesting to the great that our God reigns, that the kingdom of God is here. And when they see us at the church, hopefully they're seeing a little trailer of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come in its full. Our intention is not to make people riot. That's not what we're about. The gospel is, by its nature, good news. And it is good news. Some people will reject it. But individually and collectively, we witness to the gospel. We don't live for the idols of this world, whatever it may be, and people will notice. Our friends and our colleagues, they may ridicule, but we're offering, and we're living out the only true hope that this world can cling to, the only true hope uh, that is offered, and begins now and into eternity. Because when we are an idolless church, and we're embedded within our society, 
our neighborhood is going to see. Our friends and our family are going to see. They're going to see and they're going to hear the gospel. Our Lord Jesus will be made great. It may take years, but if we continue in our mandate to live a lifestyle that doesn't live for those idols, but lives for the only true King and the God of this earth, Jesus, then we pray that the Holy Spirit will continue his work and we'll see the church grow to the glory of God. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that we have this incredible hope, that your gospel is the only hope of this world, that Jesus, you came to this earth, you died, you rose again, you showed us the way, you made a way, and this new life, the kingdom of God which you've invited us into, uh, is now, and we look forward to it being made uh, complete when you return again, Jesus. Father, we pray you do help us uh, to know that you reveal our idols in our life, that we will repent. Please, Holy Spirit, help us to do that. And help us to be a people that live after Jesus in our lifestyle uh, for your glory and that your, ma- your name will be made known across this world. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.